Welcome back, dear listeners, to another episode of the Dish with Dina podcast. I'm so happy to have you join us. Today, my guest is Mackenzie Caldwell. Mackenzie and I dish about bonding over baking, body image issues, and the intuitive eating approach to nutrition counseling. Mackenzie is a registered dietitian based in Charlotte, North Carolina, who also holds a Master of Public Health. Mackenzie runs her own private practice, Feed Your Zest Nutrition and Wellness, where she specializes in women's health issues like hypothalamic amenorrhea and eating disorders. So sit back, enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Mackenzie Caldwell, welcome, and thank you so much for spending time with me on the Dish with Dina podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So my first question with my guests is always about how did we meet? How did we get to know each other? But you and I don't. We have really only just spoken before our official interview here, but through social media, I think you were kind enough to answer a request I had about looking for someone who specialized in women's health. Is that correct? Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we've met. It's possible maybe we ran into each other at Fancy or something, but you know, you know, those things are so many people. Right. Right. So we will go right in. Since we don't have a backstory of our relationship, let's go a little bit into your backstory because I really enjoy learning about people's earliest food memories, cultural backgrounds, family food dynamics of when they were growing up. So you can share with us, if you don't mind, just a little quick, uh, you know, information about how you were brought up and what kind of foods you were around and then maybe how that directed where you are now and what you're specializing in. Yeah. So I am uh, a thin white woman for those that cannot see. <laughs> um, so that's kind of like the privileges that I bring to the table. It's also, I guess, part of my culture too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I am the daughter of a California native from San Diego. And then my dad is from Ohio. And um, so I, I was actually kind of talking about my own food culture with um, the clients I work with at the eating disorder clinic. We were doing an activity and some of the younger kids were kind of having a hard time explaining what their culture was. So I was giving them an example. Example. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny that you're asking me this question again. Um, I had forgotten that you were going to ask it. Yeah, you prepared. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, the environment I grew up in, Los Angeles, there's a lot of influence um, from Latin America. So it's a lot of that kind of like fresh California flavors or obviously like almost all the produce in the United States comes from California. Right. So I grew up with a lot of really delicious, fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, for the most part, my family did have access to them for, for a good bit of while I was growing up. There definitely were some times where, um, my family had some hard times financially Mm. and, um, we did have to, especially during the recession, we did have to rely a little bit on, um, some food pantries and things like that. And so that's when fresh fruits and vegetables did become a little bit scarce. But when we did get them, oh my gosh, like, dang, they're good. Like, I just love California produce. <laughs> just like something that I absolutely love when I'm able to go home um, and visit my parents is loading up on all the, all the avocados. Yes. Oh my oh, God. So that, freaking good. 
that whole state really, and the climate, the temperature, the soil, everything there really lends itself to some nutritious, delicious items. And when I speak with my students, a lot of times when we try to define locally grown, you know, sometimes things are coming from across the country. We are on the East Coast and some things are coming there because it's, it's more uh, pertinent. It's more, it's seasonally available pretty much all the time because your seasons are a little bit different than us. We don't, you know, you might not have the winter seasons like we do. So it's possible you have access to more locally grown seasonal foods for a little bit longer. Maybe, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, I, so yeah, I grew, I did grow up in California. Um, and I have that background and, um, I, I ended up going to undergrad in upstate New York where there is kale and apples. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the crops. (laughs) Those are great things. They're delicious. Um, but when that's the only delicious thing, it gets a little old real quick so being down in North Carolina now where there is a warmer climate I definitely really appreciate the local produce but um yeah back to my upbringing I did grow up with my mom really loving baking and so I kind of like a lot of that love rubbed off on me Mm -hmm. and so I loved 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 getting in the kitchen making food um getting creative preparing meals with my for my family and um and baking really was a big part of kind of how I shared love with my mom. And yes. um, at a certain point, probably around age 11 or 12, um, when I, I, I grew up dancing ballet. And at a certain point, I did have an adult in my life kind of make some comments about my body. And it kind mm-hmm. of spurred some really disordered eating for me that lasted through high school and into college. Kind of rode the line of never really attracting enough attention or being kind of quote sick enough to tell some, have somebody tell me that I needed eating disorder treatment mm-hmm. uh, was kind of able to fly under the radar. That's kind of my thing of like, I, I am a perfectionist. So I was able to find that, that sweet spot of just skinny enough, you know, wow. I, I struggled with that a lot um, and struggled with some food insecurity as well. Um, and that was kind of just always part of like my relationship with food having those two poles of this interest in nutrition that was tied up a little bit with disordered eating, knowing that I probably wasn't nourishing my body enough, but then also not having really a whole lot of access to food. And those backgrounds really did influence um, my interest in public health nutrition, which is why I decided to go to Chapel Hill to get my MPH in combination with my RD. Mm-hmm. And um when I eventually did discover health at every size and intuitive eating, it clicked like almost immediately that lived experience that I had of experiencing disordered eating and um, a difficult relationship with food and body really did. um, It it was, it was very easy for me to hop on board with how, um, how those approaches really can help our clients pursue better relationships with food in their bodies and nourish themselves in a way that is not going to be restrictive as well. Right. And, you know, I'm going back to what you said about having that childhood ability to be hands-on and spending time in the kitchen or, uh, you know, with baking and getting your hands into the food and really being fascinated by flavors and having that bonding experience seems so lovely and kind and exciting. Mm -hmm. And then flash forward a handful of years where now all of a sudden 
you're kind of having to pay attention to something you might not have been realizing about yourself. And that whole relationship flips. And I think some of the other people that I've been interviewing and myself included, it's because of sometimes our positive or negative experiences in growing up and having these relationships with food in bringing us to where we are now that unfortunately we had to go through that experience at the time. But I think it makes us so much more powerful and having that connection with our current clientele because we've been there or we've been through something that we can then relate to someone else and that helps them understand that they're not alone or that they're in good hands, you know, that trust connection. I don't, um, I'm again, with all due respect to all dietitians in the land, you know, I don't know how many um, go into certain fields with whatever backgrounds and go into maybe say the clinical setting of inpatient where they might not be able to spend a lot of time working one-on-one versus that more counseling environment where it's a little bit more nurturing and sensitive. So um, I really like hearing about your experience, even though unfortunately, you know, at the time it wasn't very positive that you had to kind of uh, pay attention to the body image and the disordered eating patterns that were, that were kind of going in there. Um, Jumping ahead then, like since you just started talking about the health at every size intuitive eating for those people who are listening right now, who don't necessarily know, this is a, a different approach than what they might be understanding when they're working with a doctor, when they're getting diagnosed with something, when they're being sent to see a specialist or a dietitian for food habits. And I think a lot of times people might expect, I'm going to be handed a meal plan. I'm going to be told not to eat something. I'm going to be told to, you know, work out, whatever. Can you explain a little bit how, what approach, what approaches that might be different of what you are working with right now, the clientele you're working with right now, and what people's kind of idea of what a dietitian does in that way? Totally. Yeah. So I think, um, I think this would hopefully go for dietitians as a whole. I definitely have heard some unfortunate stories. Mm-hmm. Dietitians as a whole, we really do like to individualize our approaches and give people space to explore their nutrition challenges, no matter what our approach is. So that's hopefully true. That's not always true in every instance, but health at every size and intuitive eating are two modalities that, um, that work hand in hand really well. In fact, some might even say that intuitive eating is kind of maybe an, an offshoot or part of one of the tenets of health at every size. Right. Health at every size is the idea that uh, we don't need to manipulate people's body sizes in order to help them pursue health. It's also recognizing that people in larger bodies face stigma and bias in the healthcare system. And it takes a step back and it helps providers and patients learn how to respect bodies, no matter what size they are, stop trying to control them and Mm -hmm. control weight in general, and instead focus on self-care in the moment in order to help that person truly thrive. When we see that people pursue intentional weight loss, We see their weight cycle up and down and up and down, often called yo-yo dieting. Mm -hmm. And there's evidence to suggest that this might actually be more harmful than being in a quote unquote obese body that, or maybe even might be what we're seeing as those negative health outcomes could be totally due to the weight stigma and the weight cycling that are more often experienced by people in larger bodies who are told to diet and are told to go on these restrictive eating patterns in order to lose weight. 
Right. So you end up in that constant cycle of inflammatory conditioning Mm -hmm. as a result of trying to meet this perfect slash ideal whatever. And for those of you who are listening out there, you know, if you are a person in the larger size body, I'm sure you have stories about going to the doctor for broken bone or cold or whatever, and being immediately diagnosed with whatever it is that you have, but prescribed weight loss as a prevention or as a treatment. And that is something that I think Mackenzie and I do share. We try to make sure that we're coming from a place of that's not, that's not the case. Like you should not be immediately put on the scale for everything. So you have the ability as the patient or the client, and we have the ability as the dietitian, as a specialist, as part of your you know, medical team um, to advocate for you and for you for yourself as well. And uh, so Mackenzie, in the time that you've been doing this, because like me, I think you're kind of a young RD, not, I mean, for me, not my age, but like as far as a newer RD is concerned, you've, you've been in the field um, a handful of years like I have. Have you been seeing people coming with their own stories that kind of pain you to hear, you know, what their experiences were and what they're in, in the medical clinical offices and so on. And is, is that also something that you, you know, you're kind of helping them uh, unlearn in that way? 100%. And um, even in my dietetic internship, I saw it happening. I would see in the clinical setting, I would see people, patients in larger bodies get different to feed regimens mm-hmm. and people in smaller bodies. Um, despite the fact that the Aspen guidelines clearly suggest to give proper nutrition, no matter what body size, because weight loss is inappropriate in the clinical setting when somebody right. is critically ill. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear the anger building in my voice. There. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very passionate. Yes. <laughs> so I've seen it. I've observed it happen. I've observed bias happen. Um, and now working both in an eating disorder clinic and in a private practice in the outpatient setting um, where I have clients of all body sizes and all backgrounds. No, honestly, every single one of them has had some sort of message that they've received from the world that fat is bad, right? causing them to have something called internalized fat phobia. So it's the idea that they're so afraid of uh, being large, being fat, that they cannot allow themselves to fully trust their bodies. Um, and then along those lines, even people who actually are experiencing fat phobia and fat phobic discrimination in their day-to-day lives. For example, like a, I have a pregnant, or she actually had her baby, so she's no longer pregnant, for her. <laughs> but um when she was pregnant and she, this woman is in a larger body, um, experienced not being able to fit in seats at a restaurant because they just yeah. large enough to support her body. Um, and trying to navigate through the restaurants when she already was uncomfortable in her body in the first place and then being pregnant on top of that. So that's something that's systemic. That's kind of just a built environment uh, barrier that happens. And then I've had other clients talk to me about how, um, just like you said, they've gone to the doctor for various health issues and all they're given is weight loss advice, right? which is extremely inappropriate and um, negligent care. That's not, it's not okay. I, I agree with you. And I think I feel, I mean, 
first of all, I keep saying, you know, my podcast episodes right now are in the middle of a pandemic. But on top of that, we're also really having a, quite an eye opening, uncomfortable, but necessary discussion about systemic racism and all of these things that are applicable to health disparities and so on. So I really feel like this is quite the tipping point, especially in the health and wellness field, but mostly because I know dietitians, that's my, my world, that I think we're coming to uh, allowing our voices to step in, not just for diversifying the profession, but diversifying what health looks like and diversifying what body sizes look like and challenging those norms. And so I, you know, I mentioned to you um, in our pre-interview, I believe that I'm an adjunct lecturer. I'm a preceptor. I work with dietetic interns. I work with nutrition undergrads and graduate students. And I do make a point of bringing up these uncomfortable conversations in our, in our studies, in our lectures about challenging this, even though I realize they have to study what's in the textbook. They have to regurgitate whatever's going to be on these standardized exams. I get that. But once they're in the field, to make sure that they're questioning all the time, everything, the way that the quote unquote system is. And so on that note, I know you also offer some uh, information and some courses for students as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that too, about how you're training people who are going to go forth and kind of be the new generation? Yeah, so one thought I just want to get in there yeah, real quick please. before we move on is that how freaking racist BMI is and right. how it is this system that was invented by a white man based on a sample of other white men. So let's just kind of take that thought nugget and let it let it sink in. <laughs> I, I quite literally just had this conversation yesterday during my class about BMI is based solely on weight and height. It says nothing about body composition. It doesn't explain true health disparities. And there's so much more beyond that. But yet it's used as a statistic and a risk factor in almost everything. And you will never really hear about people who are being malnourished, which can go under or over in that way. It's not, it just always feels like everyone who is in that higher BMI category gets picked on. So I'm very glad that you, you pointed that out and brought that to light as well. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Um, back to the course. So yeah, I think that's really awesome that you work with students. I really love thinking as well. I have a goal of doing some sort of more formal teaching myself and I'm looking into job opportunities in that area um, and have like really loved doing it since being a TA for medical nutrition therapy in yeah. grad school. Um, and so uh, I think when did we connect? It might've been December, 2018. So almost two, I guess a year and a half ago, I connected with another amazing health and every size dietitian whose name is Hannah Turnbull. And she had this brilliant idea of what if we put together an online course where dietetic interns and students and even new dietitians as well can kind of have this baseline jumping off point for all things health at every size and intuitive eating. Since it's such a huge movement in dietetics as a whole, um, dietitians who become interested end up, end up having to do all of their own learning completely yes. solo. And it is yes. so overwhelming. So overwhelming. There's so many different books and so many different people saying so many different things. And you don't want to be scared to say the wrong thing. You don't want to, uh, like once you, once you realize that you have been practicing or have been speaking or have been learning in this biased stigmatizing system, you all of a sudden kind of feel paralyzed. So yes. we wanted to take all of the resources that we had used for our own learning and um, 
kind of recognize that we're standing on the shoulders of giants here. We obviously did not create the health and exercise movie. But kind of take all of those things, put it into this very easy to digest course with uh, a million links so people can dive into all the different rabbit holes that they want with research and podcasts and books and blogs, et cetera. And really give people tips on how to apply these principles in all areas of dietetics. So actually the very first name that we had for our course was called everything you didn't learn in school. Yes. But then when we realized that the acronym that came out to be like, it looks like eyelids. We were like, that's yeah. <laughs> so, not the best marketing tool. <laughs> right. I know. Right. Um, and that's why you do pilot programs. Okay. Um, <laughs> So now the name of our course is Nourish Your Knowledge. So we really want to provide this supplemental information for students who are in traditional programs where they feel like the curriculum is entirely weight-centric or clients or, um, excuse me, students or new dietitians who maybe did get some awesome mentorship and a little bit here and there of health and size in their dietetic internship, but really just want a space to solidify their learning and right. have some opportunity to do some really cool peer discussions and discussions with Hannah and myself as well. So that's Nourish Your Knowledge. It's got a Facebook group um, where we have some really amazing conversations about all different topics related to health at every size and social justice within dietetics. And then uh, the online course and peer support calls are on top of that as well. I absolutely love it. And you're so right that, I mean, listen, unfortunately, we have curriculum and we have academic uh, structures that don't allow us to really dive deep into this. We might have one tiny chapter in one giant book where we're learning this information. So for anybody out there who is a current dietitian, or even if you're not a current dietitian and you've been in the, the practice for a million years and you just want to learn things that you've never learned before, I think this is a great opportunity. And by the way, I will be linking to this in some of your you know, social media, your website and so on in this episode. So if anybody wants to learn more about it, you can click on the link that I'll have in this episode to nourish your knowledge and really get that deeper understanding of what we're talking about here, because this is also based in behavioral counseling, which is something that we don't really get in school. We learn a lot of the calculations. We don't really do a lot of, well, at least in some of the programs that I've heard about in myself, one semester, that's it. And it really goes deeper than that. So this is such a wonderful opportunity that you've created. And it also goes to show as a dietitian that we can continue kind of pursuing and persevering in that direction and offering these types of things. So don't be afraid that just because you're hired to do something and that's your job, you can't, you can't venture off and create an online course for something that you think you're, you know, you're absolutely passionate about. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think in, in speaking of continuing too, you can also do continuing education as well. Right. Our course is approved for three and a half CEUs by CDR. So there's oh, that. That's great. Um, and there's also so many other opportunities for health at every size, uh, continuing ed as well. Like the weight inclusive nutrition and dietetics run by Heather Kaplan is a really cool resource. And then EDRD pro, which is run by Sumner Brooks. If you do kind of have an interest in eating disorders, that's got monthly webinars too, where you can kind of start to build your arsenal of skills. Um, but I think a lot of dietitians feel stuck. I think they feel stuck with where they are and they feel like it's almost impossible to make the leap into something that feels right for them. And that leads to a lot of burnout. Um, but there are resources out there and 
nourish your knowledge is just one of the many ways where you can kind of have a, a springboard, a jumping point off yeah. into a career that feels fulfilling and empowering and like you're having a real impact for your clients. I would definitely encourage anybody who is interested in going in this direction and disordered eating that you do get additional knowledge because it is um, a, tr- a tricky situation to be in. You'd want to make sure that you're not using triggering language. You want to be very sensitive. If you have not gotten that um, you know, information or those skills uh, given to you during your program or your internship, then by all means, please make sure you either shadow somebody who's doing this or pursue this as well, because I think it only helps make you a deeper uh, learner and also a better counselor in that way when we're talking about you know, medical nutrition therapy in the role or the environment of disordered eating patterns. Um, just curious, Mackenzie, since I don't, you know, again, this is your specialties. Uh, I would, well, one of a couple, a few specialties that you have, but is it fair to say, especially in America, that a lot of perhaps even a good majority of young females, uh, women, young women, young girls, uh, do have some sort of disordered eating in their in their childhood or in their formative years that they might not even realize or recognize as disordered eating patterns because it's so ingrained in us to be so particular about our food and our bodies and so on? Yeah, I would say observationally, yes. Um, and then there, there is research, there's a statistic out there saying that about 60% of women in the US have disordered eating or chronic dieting at minimum. Um, and that's a, a statistic that um, I think is on like the NIDA website. I wish I knew the author because I cite it a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> I literally, every time I have to go Google it and to, to make sure I'm citing it correctly. Yeah. But um, yeah, about like overall two thirds of women in the US have some sort of disordered eating. It might be quote subclinical, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't deserve attention and um, possibly some therapy and some intuitive eating work at minimum in order to provide a a baseline healthy relationship with food for those women to fully thrive in their careers and their lives and with all of their life goals. Absolutely. And I would think in in this case too, it's a two-pronged thing. You're helping kind of fix what's broken in the human and you're also helping to fix what's broken in the system. Yes. Yeah. So we're trying to dismantle all of that stuff that we've been brought up of what looks perfect and what's the ideal person and et cetera, et cetera. And this whole BMI conversation, but you're also um, healing people who have been stuck in that, in that systemic environment and coming out of it being somewhat broken as far as their relationship and food. So I really commend you and the group of people who are focusing in this to help a new generation who may never have to deal with any of this stuff, hopefully down the line. Um, with a few minutes left kind of to talk about some other things, would you mind explaining a little bit more about some of your other specialties, specifically HA, and I, I'm going to say it incorrectly, is it hypothalamic or hypothalamic amenorrhea? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> did, I, did I do that right? I know what these things stand for. I know how to, to translate, but explain a little bit to people who might not know um, what that is and what that entails and maybe how in relationship to what you're doing already. Yeah. Um, the way I say it is hypothalamic amenorrhea, but to be honest, I feel like mostly I just read it as words versus saying it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) So HA as let's just call it that. Yes. Um, HA is when a female body is undergoing a certain amount of, like can be a combination of these three things, 
mental stress, so extreme anxiety or just overall stress in general could be that they're, they are actually in some sort of, um, trauma, traumatic, like ongoing trauma or dealing with past trauma. Um, so there's a mental piece to it. And then, um, undernutrition. So being in a caloric deficit or over exercise, and obviously the kind of the caloric deficit can go hand, the, the nutrition and the exercise can go hand in hand there with creating that caloric deficit. Right. All of that comes together to cause a female to lose their period. Right. And to not be ovulating. Um, and the risks with that, some people would be like, wait, like, I don't want to get my period. Like, why do I need to get it? And the risks are that, um, it's kind of one of the vital signs that show that a female body is, is healthy and that it has a healthy metabolism as well. When you are undernourished or under a lot of stress, your body starts to shut things down in order to survive. So in order to conserve energy in order to kind of just be safe. And one of those things, it will shut off your reproductive system. Your body starts to think, oh, something must be going on in the world, whether it's war or famine. I guess it's not mm-hmm. get pregnant. We're going to shut that down. But what's also happening is your bones and might stop turning over. So that puts you at risk for osteoporosis and fractures. Right. Um, it might do damage to your internal organs, specifically your liver and your kidneys. That's kind of one of the more extreme ones. Digestion can slow. You might feel cold all the time. You might end up with some other micronutrient deficiencies or have thinning hair, feel fatigued, have a low libido. Um, so the fact that the period is gone is really just one of the signs of this undernutrition overall. And so getting a period back can be a really important sign that nutrition status is returning to normal that we've rehabilitated, but it's not the only one. Um, so there's lots of other markers that go along with that. And so HA can occur in somebody who has a full-blown eating disorder. It can also occur in somebody who maybe just is chronic dieting and perhaps um, maybe even doesn't even realize that they have a difficult relationship with food and body. Maybe they're going through a, a death in the family or some, some sort of other grief where they lose their appetite. Maybe it's depression. So right. there can be a lot of interrelationships with disordered eating. Um, it can also be very, it is also very common in female athletes who, um, maybe have been told that they need to restrict their eating in order to perform better, or perhaps something else is going on where they, they lose their appetite and aren't able to fuel their bodies enough to support their training. Right. We, um, I teach life cycle nutrition. This comes up in, in the adolescent chapter where we talk about at the time, maybe where children are going into, you know, uh, high school sports or elementary school sports or whatever, and they might start having these different kinds of eating patterns or since they're excessively exercising, because that's part of their training, they're being undernourished in that way. And there is a, a correlation with, you know, the amount of healthy weight and healthy body fat on you in response to your hormones and your reproduction productive system. Like you were saying, that's your body's response of saying something here is off kilter or there's an imbalance. So let's stop the period and figure out what's going on. And that's also a telltale sign of for you to step in as the dietitian and help them kind of correct that, that condition. Just out of curiosity, is that, is that an actual diagnosis? Is that like a DSM five diagnosis of that? Or is that just, um, 
I don't know what you would call it, like a well, condition. Yeah. So it's not because it's not a psychiatric diagnosis. So it's not a right. DSM-5. It is okay. um, something that like your OBGYN or your primary care provider could diagnose you with. Okay. Uh, so that would be like, I guess, an ICD-10 code. There's probably yes. one for <laughs> yes. HA. I will right. say that HA can occur in people in larger bodies. So just because okay. you have fat on your body or you might be in the quote unquote overweight or even the quote unquote obese category, you can't okay. still have HA. HA. It's a little less okay. common, but it can happen. Um, and it's important to um, make sure that if you are missing your period, that your OB or your endocrinologist is doing a full workup. A lot of women in larger bodies will get actually get misdiagnosed with PCOS. Actually, right. I'll just say this in general. It's not just larger bodies. A lot of women in general will get misdiagnosed with PCOS because they're not getting full lab work done. But there's a clear distinction between PCOS, which you might have some elevated androgens or different um, things going on with FSH and LH, whereas in HA, pretty much all of your hormonal markers are low, low everything. Gotcha. Um, that's it's really that's important for the that diagnosis and that, um, I guess that differential diagnosis to occur with your medical provider in order to get the right nutrition care, because nutrition for PCOS is not the same as Way different for HA. Right. right. Yeah. That's a great distinction. And I appreciate you, you bringing that up too. So anybody out there who, again, anybody who out there is not familiar with these issues or might be struggling in some way, if you have been diagnosed in some way with these things, then you know the questions to ask too. And especially with, like you said, with the misdiagnosis of it, um, just being conscientious and being an educated consumer, patient, client, whatever is always very helpful as well. Mackenzie, before we start wrapping up, is there anything that we maybe didn't cover? Anything else you'd like to add that I didn't have questions for or I didn't ask properly? No, I just want to, I did want to thank you for your kind words earlier. You jumped into the next question, but I really do appreciate that you appreciate the health and resize community. Um, and it's really awesome to have you in the academic side and doing all the training. Um, and I guess it's for you and for anybody else listening that is that Hannah and I are in the process of starting to reach out to um, internship directors and preceptors who might be interested in having their interns complete the Nourish Your Knowledge course because we want to do some sort of um, like group discounts for that because we want oh. to make sure that this resource is available to as many that people is as possible. That is fantastic. I mean, they can put it in as a module in some way in the internship program or whatever. That, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. You and I should email about that. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm on your side with that. Um, so where you are uh, on social media publicly, can you share with us where people can find you? And then of course I'll put your links in. Yeah. So mostly on Instagram is where I'm at. And my Instagram handle is at women's.health.dietitian. And my website is www.feedyourzest.com. And then the Facebook group, for Nourish Your Knowledge, you should be able to find that if you uh, just search Nourish Your Knowledge. Um, I don't think there's any other copycat groups out there, hopefully. <laughs> and then, um, the course website for that is nourish-your-knowledge.teachable.com. Perfect. And I'll make sure I link to all these things. So my last question, which I ask everybody, what is on your plate today? Is today very busy for you? But also, what are you eating next? Because I love to talk about food. <laughs> yeah. 
So today has, has been kind of a busy day. I went to the dermatologist. Um, I've seen, I have seen three out of four clients. So I'm eating, I'm seeing my last client of the day next 530 slot. Um, and currently I'm drinking both seltzer and water, double fisting my liquids. Um, <laughs> that's why I talked earlier that Dina's going to cut out. Of the <laughs> a super um, hydrator. You're a super <laughs> hydrator. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to have leftover spaghetti, but I need to cook a vegetable because I ate all of my roasted broccolini. <laughs> Give props, <laughs> props to the veggie, especially since you grew up being in that veggie environment. It only makes sense that you would want to have them represented on your plate. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do like to get my veggies. I love my, I love all of my food groups and having a veggie on there is helpful for satisfaction. So many reasons. Awesome. Mackenzie, thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy day. I'm so pleased that you are one of the first, you know, dozen guests that I'm having on here. And I'm really so excited to see where this podcast goes in what direction, but also where you go and what your directions are for your future you. And I wish you the absolute best and success and just, you know, continuing with persevering in that message and that mission that you have, which I think is so, so important. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Dina. Uh, all the same to you. I'm very excited about this podcast for you. Yeah, thank you. All right, hon, have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina. And I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at dishwithdina.com with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again.